welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us, and that helps us draw more power out of them, and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Muelstein, and this is a short cast, and let me explain the, this short cast just a little bit and uh, do a couple of other business items. So first of all, the business items, uh, I'm just putting this out there because people keep asking me to let them know on the podcast when things like this are happening. So um, at Education Week, uh, I will at BYU, for those of you who are able to come and attend that, uh, which it's happening like the third week of August. Let me look up exactly when it is. It is starting August 21st. Um, I will be doing a series of lectures on Monday. I will do uh, one lecture on the book of Hebrews and three lectures on the book of Revelations. And then Tuesday through Friday, I'll be doing a, a four-part series on um, picturing the Bible and, and just picturing things about Christ and the Acts of the Apostles and things like that and uh, ways that it can help us understand the things we're reading and Come Follow Me by knowing some of the uh, cultural elements, historical elements, picturing things, that kind of a thing. And I've got one that I'm doing on the covenant as well. So that's uh, three series of lectures plus one lecture on Hebrews. I just try to think of what would help people with Come Follow Me this year. And we put out uh, some lectures on that. So uh, please feel free to to jump in on those. Um, you can. Uh, we'll also do a live event for Spark, the Society for the Preservation of Ancient Religious Cultures, Wednesday, August 23rd um, at 5 p.m. Uh, in the McDonald Building. Uh, you can come and learn about Spark and and decide if you want to join or not. Um, uh, so that's another event. Okay, so let me talk about what we're doing here with Romans. We're doing something different here. The, it, there, for the first reading in Romans, I don't really have a podcast that's going to cover uh, those chapters really well. Um, instead, uh, I'm going to get the second episode for this week is a roundtable that I did with uh, Dr. Lincoln Blumel and Dr. Gay Strathern, where I talk about um, elements of Paul that are difficult. So it's it's really about how some of the difficult things about Paul and strategies and so on. And uh, I think it will be helpful as we get into the epistles for you to listen to that roundtable. And uh, just I think it will help you with all of the epistles of Paul that we read. Uh, the other thing that I have decided that I will do, and I'm afraid to commit to this online. And so I'll just do it with a caveat that if I have a week that's just way too crazy, I may not get it done. But I was thinking that each time we come to a new epistle, um, that I'll do an overview, a short cast that is an overview. I may not do that for something like Timothy or Titus that are short, and the the discussion will have an overview naturally in it. Uh, and there may be some weeks where my guest just does such a great overview, I don't do an extra overview. Uh, but I think sometimes having an overview is helpful, uh, and so I want to kind of uh, do that and, and help us put these things in their historical context and chronological context and so on and so on. Um, so I'm going to try and do a little bit of an overview every week. That being said, this week, it's going to be just a little bit different. I'm going to do an overview, but I've also recorded with Dr. Daniel Belknap uh, the, the episode for the second part of Hebrews, or sorry, the second part of Romans. But he, uh, in order to get us there, did a nice little overview of some of the chapters in the first part. So we're going to detach that from the episode on the second part of Romans, make it part of this introductory overview. So you'll have me, then you're going to have spliced onto this, me and Dr. Belknap. And then you'll have next week, 
Dr. Belknap and myself as I introduce him and as we go through the second part of Romans. And I will encourage you to listen to the introduction he's already given, or you won't get what he's talking about in that, that second episode. So with all of that being said, let me just kind of introduce the epistle of Romans to you. Uh, and we should say this seems to have been written towards the end of Paul's third missionary journey, probably while he's living in Ephesus um, and so on. Uh, we know that he's decided that he should go to Rome. Uh, and this letter is part of that. Uh, so we don't know exactly when it's written, but it seems to be written around that time period. Uh, and in order to understand a lot of what's going on with uh, Romans, we need to get a little bit of historical background. Uh, we're first of all going to find that many of the epistles are because Paul has heard about some kind of difficulty or some kind of problem, and he's addressing that. As we've said in our overview of Acts, really, uh, Paul sets up a lot of churches, or he's trying to build the kingdom by setting up all these churches, but everyone there is going to be new converts. And so he's constantly going back and visiting, but also writing letters to try and keep them strengthened and going in the right way. Well, the church in Rome, and we're talking the city of Rome, the church in Rome had initially Jewish converts and then Gentiles joining, just like in lots of other places. And these aren't from Paul. He, he hasn't gone there. So other people have gone there. Some tradition holds Peter went there um, and that Peter is the one who uh, gained a lot of these converts and that he stayed there until the Jews were kicked out. But um, that's part of what we need to understand here. There are a lot of, of uh, Jewish and Gentile converts. By now, we're familiar with some of the struggles between these groups uh, and the questions about do how much of the law of Moses do Gentiles need to keep? Do they need to become, as it were, Jews in terms of the way they live to become Christians, or do they not have to? Um, and so they were kind of working those things out. But then the emperor Claudius kicks all the Jews out of Rome. And there are no Jews in Rome for five years. And five years later, under Nero, who will later do terrible things to Christians, but under Nero, Jews are allowed to return to Rome. And uh, so they do return. And as these Jewish Christians come in, they find that the Gentile Christians have been uh, taking care of things on their own. And, uh, you know, anytime you're cut off from leadership, some things are going to wander and drift a little bit. But they've also just found a way to be Christian without being Jewish at all and with no Jewish leaders or leadership. And this uh, becomes difficult. How do you integrate these two communities when they've grown apart, as it were, in their Christian practices and in their ideas of what it means to be a Christian? Um, and so there's some tension and some difficulty in integrating them. And that is part of what Paul is writing about. I think he's also writing because he wants to come in, uh, to Rome, and he's uh, going to work among them, so they need to kind of know who he is and be prepared to receive him. Some of the Jews there probably don't like him, the Jewish Christians, uh, because they've heard that he doesn't like the law of Moses and so on. Um, and so I think he's trying to set the stage for him to come as well. And so those are some of the things that are the reasons behind Paul writing a letter to the Christians in Rome that we call Romans. We don't know for sure that this is Paul, but this very, very, very much seems like Paul, although this style in some ways is different. It, he does have a different style of writing here. It's almost as if this is a treatise to, to teach them. Uh, so he really wants the church to become unified. 
uh, unified in terms of Christian uh, or Jew and Gentile being together, unified in terms of accepting him, unified in terms of, of belief and doctrine and so on. And so he's going to teach them doctrine that he thinks they all need to know and understand and that he hopes will reconcile them and help them to become unified. So he starts out with the idea that Christ is the king. Christ is our king, and he will unite all of humanity, uh, humanity under him and make it so that we can be righteous. So he starts out by showing that all mankind became sinful, and as a result, we're all guilty. This is true of all of humanity. Israel is given a covenant and with the attendant laws to help them know the right way to act, and they're given a stewardship of the prophetic teachings they received. So they got lots of teachings from these prophets. They have a stewardship over that to preserve it, to live it, and to, to pass it on. Um, they tended to think that as a result of this, uh, these laws and this special relationship and having the prophetic teachings that they were safe, but they're not safe because they broke the law and they didn't faithfully pass along or listen to the prophetic teachings. So they're guilty, perhaps even more guilty because they had the law and broke it. In the end, Paul is trying to show everybody's guilty. Every single human is guilty and uh, under the law, we are found guilty. All right. We're hopelessly trapped and we're condemned by our sins. Jew and Gentile alike, we're in the same boat. We're all condemned by the law. So to remedy this, God sent Christ and Christ came to this earth and he suffered. As a result, a result our faithlessness will be overcome by his faithfulness. That's a, a, a kind of a, a couplet that Paul wants us to understand. Um. Christ is pronounced guilty with our guilt. He, he suffers. So we know he's not really guilty, but he takes his guilt upon us. So he becomes a guilty person because he takes our sins upon him. And as a result, the guilt that he, he, it started with Adam and Eve and Christ becomes a partaker of that. He took upon all of us or he took upon himself all of our sins. And in that way, he became a sinner. We know he's not really a sinner and he's not really guilty, but he takes our guilt and our sinner, our guilt, guiltiness and our sinnership upon himself. And then he overcomes it. He overcomes all of it, overcomes what happened with Adam and Eve, overcomes everything that we did and that we do or will do. And resurrection is the final overcoming all of this, and it's the proof of Jesus as the conquering king that he conquers everything. So by becoming us, he makes it possible for us to become like him. And this makes it so that we can all become righteous. Even Abraham was justified by his faith, not by his works, Paul teaches us. So through his suffering and death and resurrection, Christ makes it so that we can become justified or righteous or not guilty. This is true of both Jew and Gentile. All are made righteous in Christ. And as a result, we can become new, new creatures, new beings. We can start to follow God in a new way through covenant. And, and that covenant is available to everyone. And that creates a new family. This is the family of Christ, created and begotten by Christ. We are his children, a new family. And we should be a unified family, begotten through Christ and covenant. So in order for that to happen, we have to leave the old us behind. We're going to have to let it die or we're going to have to kill it and let it be buried. And then we can arise as a new being born of Christ. And now that we're that kind of being, the, the, the kind of being we need to be, then we can be part of the family of those who are born again. Paul's clear to say that the law doesn't justify us. We're guilty under the law because we never will follow it perfectly, never, ever. 
but we do become the kind of people who love God and love and want to keep the law because we become, become the kind of people who love acting the right way and the law is simply directions for how to act the right way. This helps us become more godly. That that love of God and love of, of living the right way helps us become more godly. People who were like this were, were all part of God's family or Abraham's family, and he's equating those two things. And as a result, everyone in the church should be unified, one big happy family. That's what Paul is trying to get us to. Now, this only happens if we love each other, and if we truly love each other, we will serve each other. Service will happen because of love, and when we conflict comes, and it will, we overcome it, and we forgive and forget because of love. We know love is the greatest commandment, and it creates unity. And this should make it so that when they have disputes over, you know, kosher laws and, and other things about being Jewish, circumcision and so on, or about how to keep the Sabbath, those are just differences over the non-essential issues. Love is what can get us through differences over non-essential issues and heal us and unify us. The essential issue is believing in Christ and being made new by him. So Paul teaches that we're made masters over sin rather than being servants to it by our love of Christ and through Christ, by our love of and faith in Christ and through Christ, I should say. Through him, we don't have to be servants of the law of Moses. We don't have to be servants of sin or the natural man or carnality or whatever you'd like to say. As we leave behind the desires of the flesh in this world and turn to God through faith in Christ and in love, we can experience true freedom and true happiness. So there are other things that kind of the sundries that he takes care of, but really those are the, um, that's a good overview of the book of Romans. And I hope that looking at that as, and knowing that overview will help you as you do your reading to make sense of each little part along the way of the, the overview. So with that being said, we'll now transition into the discussion that Dr. Belknap and I have uh, where we go through the first couple chapters of, of Romans, getting up to chapter seven, which is in the second week. And then you'll need to review that before you get into the second week. Not knowing what you did talk about, I'll, I'll talk about maybe set up how I kind of teach it when I teach class. Um, yep. As was probably mentioned by your guests, this this letter is not like a normal letter, right? Yeah. So I don't know if they talked about that, but when you read, for instance, Romans versus first Corinthians, first Corinthians reads like a letter. He's clearly gotten a letter um, that asked him a series of questions. He's responding to those questions. There's a discussion about what needs to be done moving forward. This reads more like an essay, right? And I think that's one of the things that makes Romans so tricky is it reads like an essay and the English therefore is a hard to follow sometimes. I, and uh, at least it is for me. And, and, and the Greek, unfortunately, isn't necessarily a whole lot better. It's good Greek. It's really good Greek. And I think that's one of the reasons why you have such a problem with the translation. Yeah, I think Paul, Paul is often a little bit difficult to understand. He's, his oration or writing style is complex, right. but this one even more so than most. Uh, although this is one that most people, I mean, you, you never know who's really an author if it doesn't say something or other. But, and even when it does, you don't know if it, but, but this probably is Paul. Um, so anyway, yeah, keep going. Yeah. And so for, for many Christians, this is the ultimate example of Pauline theology, right? If you were yeah. to, if you were to look at the different letters and, and what he's done, this is, this is Paul, this is what Christianity is 
from Paul's perspective. And yet, I don't think that should scare Latter-day Saints. I look at it, and in terms of his audience, he's writing to the church in Rome. That would mm-hmm. That's why it's called Romans. Uh, but the problem that he's got, or that he seems to be dealing with, is a, is a pretty common problem that you find elsewhere. Galatians talks about it. Colossians mentions this. Philippians has this element of it. And it has to do, at least from my perspective, that you're dealing with um, two two types of members or or two different backgrounds to the members of the congregation in Rome. And that would be Jewish converts and mm-hmm. Gentile converts. Yeah. And, and the question is, and, and again, this is with an accent elsewhere is what exactly is the relationship between these two? What, what does it mean to be Israelite? And, and that to me is an interesting question because it's going to be answered in chapter nine, right? Explicitly going to be answered in nine, but really does lead to the problem. What exactly are we supposed to do with uh, a Jewish background, Jewish history, and yet Gentiles no longer having to keep the law? And so with that... And, and maybe I, I'll just uh, remind okay. our audience, uh, I, I, I talked about this briefly in the overview last week, but I, I think it's worth noting, in my opinion, this has probably been exacerbated a bit by the fact that, that rich, initially you probably had Jewish converts and then Gentile converts and they're together, but then all of the uh, Jewish converts are kicked out of Rome for five years. And by the time any of them can come back, uh, the Gentiles are just thriving and doing fine on their own and, and uh, not been influenced by uh, the Jews for five years. And, and uh, it's not so easy to reintegrate. They're, they're not necessarily of the same mindset about a number of things. And so I think that's part of what's prompting what we're going to see Paul address uh, here in, in this part that, that we're going through. I would agree. Chapter 11 certainly does that, right? While much of this is written to, at least from a, a Jewish perspective of what they need to do to keep the law in in the right boundaries chapter 11 is clearly a message to the gentiles going whoa 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 whoa, whoa. right before yeah. i mean if god can do that to the jews he can certainly do it with a bunch of uh grafted in branches to use yeah. language that he would use but in, in terms of this i go back to romans 1 and when i teach it i suggest there's a thesis if this is an essay then we should be able to find a thesis statement right uh, or something that is going to resemble or is akin to a thesis statement and i think that's in romans 1 verse 16 now, it's slightly confessional, but you can yeah. see a thesis in here that really does define the overall message of the book, right? So verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, right? So yeah, By which he, he means Gentile. Right. That's exactly right. So to that where he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but then he tells us what the gospel of Christ is. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone. Thus, the thesis would be somewhere in this, he's going to address, it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Gentile, all salvation is going to come through Christ. And that's the only way in which salvation can be made manifest, right? So. Regardless of this audience, this is going to be the message. The gospel of Jesus Christ uh, is the power of God into salvation for everybody. And so if you find that thesis, then you can start to go through the chapters and see how has he developed that argument, right? And in fact, by the end of chapter one, if you go through the rest of chapter one, again, the language is a little difficult to follow. But what he ends up demonstrating is that everybody is guilty of something, right? Yeah. So so whether you're Jew or Gentile, uh, your understanding of the nature of God got lost somewhere. And then you have this famous, or at least not famous, but one of my favorite elements is verses 28 through 31, 30. Yeah. 28 through 31, where you just have a list of sin, similar to like King Benjamin saying, I could list all of them, but 
that would be too long of a list. We can't yeah. list every way in which we do wrong. But the list is like, you look at it, it's, right? You gave over things to a reprobate mind to do things which are not convenient and unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Yeah. So are I was you like, listening to my kids? Anyway, sorry, keep going. <laughs> right? I mean, the list is uh, murder on one hand yeah. and disobedient to parents on the other. These two things aren't necessarily equal. Right. Though I guess you could say they're both in the Ten Commandments, but I look at it and go, it's a spectrum of really wrongdoing to that which everybody is guilty of, and that's the point. Everybody's yeah. guilty. Yeah. So when well, you look, look at, at the two together, murder, debate. Right. That's the next thing, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Backbiters, people who have backtalked in any way, shape, or form, right? Grumbled yeah. or complained. I'm like, yep. There I am. So, so I've got a list, uh, uh, just a spectrum of behaviors of which everybody's guilty of, of which can be summed up in chapter two, verse one, where he's like, therefore thou art inexcusable, right? Nobody has an excuse to their behavior. So if the thesis was, is that the salvation comes through Jesus Christ and everybody needs it, then he's got to set up that everybody needs it. And that's what he's done by the end of chapter one. In Good. fact, with that, one of the one of the things that uh, I like to point out, uh, and it's going to sound really kind of technical, but the first word of chapter two is therefore, right? Right, right. Now, therefores to me are really important words in scripture mm -hmm. study, mm -hmm. not because they're doctrinally intrinsic. There's there's nothing doctrinally intrinsic about the word, but it does set up relationships between things. Yes, right. It's one of the words I tell my students they have to pay attention to. That's exactly right. That's exactly right, because it sets up relationships or explains a cause of action or summative. And so in this case, you can almost say it is summative. Therefore, you're all guilty, yeah. right? And so with that, then he begins to develop his argument a little bit more. You can see this in chapter two, where he points out now, because we're all fallen, we're all going to end up having the same type of... So it's almost as if he jumps from the beginning all the way to the end of this. We're all going to be brought before the throne of God. We're all going to be judged by him. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. And in fact, that's one of the great things that we can trust with God is he is truly just. It doesn't really matter. We're all going to go before him. And he's going to judge us based on what we know, right? And that's where this is This is an element of this where I think Romans gets tricky. You can, you can I don't know what you think about that, Carrie, but when Paul talks about the law, he's not always clear what he means by the law. Yeah, not a, it, sometimes it's just law of God in general, and sometimes it's law of Moses in specific. Uh, I, and I think sometimes he is actually meaning the law of Moses. Sometimes you can say, yeah, either one, it doesn't matter. Sometimes I think he does mean the law of Moses is in we don't need to do that. Right. Um, but but clearly we need to keep a law. Uh, right. and, and so you're right. It, it, he is unclear. Right. And so I've looked at it and wondered, it seems to me that the connection that he makes is between what you know and what you don't know. And therefore, it's law sometimes stands in place of that dichotomy, for lack of a better term. Right. Good. So you're going to be judged based on what you know, and he can call that law. And if the Gentiles, the Gentiles might not have the law of Moses, but they have a natural law. There are things that their society does that is just wrong, right? So you can look at verse 14, when the Gentiles, this is chapter two, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these not having the law are a law, 
if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. So there's just a set of behavior that humanity seems to generally recognize that is wrong. And so even if you don't have the law of God in whatever form it's in, and yet you still have these principles, this law that you know you shouldn't do it. In some ways, I look at it from a Latter-day Saint perspective of, um, what do we call this? The light of Christ. Right. Right. That there's an element here of where Paul talks about the light of Christ, that we, that even if you don't have an official formalized law of God, like the Ten Commandments or the, or the, or the tablets of stone, you still know what's right or wrong. And if that's true, then you're held accountable for what you do know. Right. Very good. So then he goes on and says, okay, but what if you do have the law? And if you do have the law, then what? What happens when when that isn't when you're not doing that? And so you get down here to verse 22. Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou not commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, though through you as it is written. Now, that's just a long way to say, okay, but if you've got the law and you break it, I mean, you might say, and this seems to be a Jewish argument that he's responding to, right? That the Gentiles, by the very nature that they're not with God, are unclean, right? We know this from Gen from Jewish tradition, Jewish law later, that interaction with Gentiles is strictly prohibited, right? You're not to engage with Gentiles. They are unclean. They're whatever you want to say, bad influence that you're going to have to deal with later. So he's responding to this going, okay, but if you have the law and you break the law, isn't that more dishonorable to God? No. Right? Yep. But I think yeah, the whole which is, point— uh, King Benjamin makes the same point in a lot of ways. Yep. But anyway, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? In fact, to me, one of the great things about uh, Romans is that you can use the Book of Mormon as commentary. Yeah. yeah. Right? What, what Alma has to say about justice and mercy— is going to be talked about in justification and grace in the book of Ro in the letter to the Romans. So it's really actually quite helpful to know the book of Mormon doctrines to some degree to getting yeah. through this. Good. But it's these last few verses here that I think gets to the next point. So again, if the thesis is, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of salvation unto all, right? Mm -hmm. And a Jew or Gentile, and it doesn't matter. Interestingly, this is, this is dealing with that, the problem, which is how do you deal with these Jewish and Gentile converts? And in my mind, what it means to be Israel, right? How do you define Israel? Because, because as he starts talking about the promises uh, that are made elsewhere later in this book, this is something for both Jew and Gentile, which means, which means what this book really does for me, and I know I'm rambling here for a bit, but I'm trying to get to get all the things in place so we can start exploring it more. But it seems to me that early Christianity, or at least New Testament Christianity, was in fact teaching that you all need to be a part of Israel. Hmm. Yeah. Right? I, I think so. I, I that's think the so. way I read it. Now, I know there are people who don't read it that way, but that's how I read it. I agree. I, and so I know that I know that there's another way to look at this, but it sure seems to me that when they talk about covenant, they still keep it in the context of Israel. They're just defining Israel differently. And I think if you go through Acts chapter two of Peter, that's when they ask him, what do we need to do? We've been pricked in our heart. What do we need to do? He ties it back to their covenantal integrity, not their lineage, right? Yeah. But it's still tied to Abrahamic promises just with covenant. So yep. as we go through these verses, he gets to circumcision, 
Now, circumcision, I'm sure, has been talked about elsewhere in your podcast, right? We've dealt with it in Acts chapter 15. And in many ways, it's a stand-in for a much larger question, which is to become Israelite or to become Israel, do you need to become Jewish? Yeah, that that is that's been the raging question, and I I think in many ways leads to the church falling apart. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. So I think sometimes we get caught up on this whole circumcision thing when it's really just a stand in for a much larger doctrinal concern they've got. So here's what you become uh, someone who keeps the law of Moses in a Jewish manner or not is really the question. Right. Right. And does and if you do, is that what makes you Israel or the or the recipient of these incredible covenants that God made? Right. Right. So he begins now with that for circumcision, verily profiteth if thou keep the law. Right. Where, where if, are you? Sorry. Verse 25 of chapter two. Sorry. Okay. So for circumcision, verily profiteth if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Right. And of course you can't undo circum. Well, you can now, but you couldn't then let's put it that way. Right. But you can't overcome circumcision. And yet what he's trying to say is your circumcision, this mark that demonstrates you have a particular relationship with God, is void. It has no power. It has no efficacy if you're not keeping the law. Yeah. Right? Yep. Therefore, and, In other words, and this is one of the great messages of the entire Old Testament and of the New Testament. You can make the covenant, but if you're not really keeping, if you're not a covenant keeper in your heart, you're not really part of the covenant. Yeah, that's exactly right, right? When we're, we're going to see this imagery again of being circumcised of heart. Stephen brought it up, right? Mm-hmm. Just as your fathers denied, so do you. You, the, you, you. you never got this in your heart. You're uncircumcised of heart. Yep. So so this is, and again, one of the reasons I like to see that is if it is in Stephen in Acts chapter seven, right? And we don't see any place where Stephen is a disciple of Paul or anything like that. One of the challenges I see Paul's helping to kill him. Yeah. Yeah. One of the challenges I see in in, um, early Christian studies is sometimes they want to make this huge divide between Paul and Peter and that we've got different types of Christianity out there. Right. But what I tend to see is in fact, they're a lot more unified in message than we give them credit for. In any case, so verse 26, therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? Again, it's where this law is, right? And all of this will lead down to verse 28, which I think is just profound, the logic of how he got here, and it makes, and it works. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Yeah. He's just redefined what it means to be a Jew. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, in a, in a way, I mean, Christ tried to as well sure. uh, the, in the same way, but you're absolutely right, saying it's about what you're really doing in your heart, not about the outward actions. Right. And so if we go back to that thesis with the question in mind, the implicit question of, well, who is Israel, which I think really does lie behind this, He's now just begun that process. We're all fallen, but here's what makes a Jew, right? So if we're going to talk about, do you need to become Jewish to become Israel? His response is, do you even know what it means to be a Jew first? Right. 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 That's exactly right. Not all Jews are of Israel is what he's saying. So 
So let's forget about the Jewish thing and get to the Israel thing. Right. And if a Jew is defined by what's happening in your heart, well, then cannot the uncircumcision do something that would count as circumcision? Yeah. If it's inward, which we all recognize now is inward, even those of us who keep the law, we've got to recognize it's in our heart, right? If that's true, then what makes a Jew is really something internal, not external. Right. And that's how he's going to begin to be able to develop this, right? Good. Very good. Now, I don't know if you want to go through it chapter by chapter or not, but... Uh, it's up to you how you want to do it. I mean, yeah, let's, we can just do one verse for all I care, whatever you want. Well, so just so in chapter three, we don't even need to go through it. He's just setting up this more of this. It's not the law that justifies us then. If it's something internal, it's some. it's got to be something else, right? It's Jesus Christ. But what really gets me is that this takes to chapter four where he now introduces us to the great Christian par excellence, at least in, in Paul's setting. Yeah. And that's going to be Abraham. Right. So again, he's, he's going back and forth between this is what, this is what the Jewish convert might feel. This is what a Gentile convert might feel. This is where we all come together. We're all fallen. We all have no excuse. We're all going to be judged of God by the law that we have. And it is ultimately the law that's in our heart, right? How we keep that law that is going to matter in terms of judgment. Now, in terms of our role model, who should that be? Abraham's not a bad one, right? Right. And and so you can go through this in chapter four, but was Abraham justified of works? This is an intriguing one because to his, to the Jews, Abraham is their forefather, right? Everything they have stands back to them. The reason they have the uh, promises given to them is because of Abraham, which suggests then, at least the way Paul writes, that they really do seem to see Abraham as a Jew, right? Right. Oh, yeah. The problem is, is that he isn't, right? And that's what Paul points out is you can say whatever you want. He hadn't even been circumcised when he got the covenant, though. Yeah. Right? So yep. so he was, he, he was judged on his faith, on his internal relationship with God. It wasn't, it wasn't that. So, and Israel's his grandson anyway. So you've got someone who is, I don't know if you can say Abraham's a Gentile, but he's not a Jew. That we can yeah. say, yeah, right. Good. So so Abraham becomes a great model, and it, and it's funny because here, um, with him discussing Abraham and how he gets his blessings through the faith and not through any works of the law, because he doesn't have the law of God that hasn't been received yet, but it's done through faith. I do find it interesting that Luke, who is a companion of Paul, decides to start his gospel uh, with the story of John the Baptist, right? So he's the only one that really starts the story there. But when you read chapter one, I've, and I always wondered, why does this Gentile convert start his gospel off with a quintessentially Jewish story, right? <laughs> but I think part of it is because the story of Zacharias and uh, his wife, Elizabeth, looks remarkably similar to Abraham. And Sarah. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. And so, and, and so by making those allusions, he's tied Christ into a fulfillment of Abrahamic promises in chapter one, which means it's a perfectly good, even though the story is very Jewish, it's the perfect story for a Gentile audience to start with, that the promises of Abraham uh, were met in John the Baptist and the birth of Christ. Very anyway. good. That's neither here nor there, but but so we're setting. So in terms of his thesis development, notice he's now given us an example. Okay, we're all like this. Let's go to Abraham, who was neither Jewish 
but maybe not really Gentile. He kind of fits both. And yet this is how he did it, right? And so you can go through chapter four, recognizing here that through his faith, he received these promises, the promises that are all given to us. Chapters five and uh, set up that he takes it back even further now to Adam, right? Pointing out that uh, all of these things stem back to Adam and Eve and their choice in which now we need an atoning figure for. It's not the law that's going to save us, but through Adam's fall, we can be saved, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just, you can dive through all of these verses into this, but he's talking about the fact, he's coming back to the thesis, nobody can be saved. Nobody can be saved without Jesus Christ. All of us are fallen. He set up that we're all fallen in sin. He's now setting up that we're all fallen through just physical mortality, right? So by the time you get to chapter six, he really has set up an argument where we are all in serious, serious trouble without Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. Even Abraham, the role model of all, we're all fallen. We're all stuck in this mortal, imperfect, sinful state that we're in, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can begin to see a change of that thesis beginning in chapter six with the introduction of the ordinance of baptism, right? So chapter six, verse one, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that we are dead to sin live any any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so should we walk in newness of life. Okay, back to our thesis and back to the setup. If by chapter 5 he's demonstrated that we are all sinful, we are all fallen, we are all physically imperfect, The implication is we're all dead, right? There is nothing that we can do. Mm -hmm. But through baptism, this incredible ordinance, we're reborn. Yeah, we we die, we we voluntarily die, and then we are given new life. Right, right. Or we voluntarily kill part of ourselves. (laughs) Well, what was it? The old man. The old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. So now he's moving into demonstrating the thesis so if the first part was i need to demonstrate why you need to be saved now he starts talking a little bit more of how exactly that's going to manifest itself right 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 and so so again we've skipped over a lot but but i love romans because it really does follow a thesis and he's done a great job of demonstrating this thesis so we get we get baptism recognizing that it is both a death and a rebirth right that both of these symbols are being met in this incredible ordinance we yeah. die, as you said, voluntarily and are reborn in Christ. Right. Very good. Good. So so then now we can get to chapter seven.